subject, if you open up your, uh, your um, observation worksheets, chapter 15, that's where we're going to be hanging, and I want you to pull out your chart. She had you do that chart on, in, with all the columns and pull that out because we are literally just following that chart this morning. So that will be your guide in how we are going to you know, parse out the conversation here. And that chart will help you, I think, a great deal to answer a lot of your own questions. All right. So, hey, Brenda, happy to see you, dear. Okay. Now, this is an interesting thing about Paul. Paul being the scholarly mind that he was and so well trained and being a lawyer nonetheless, he has a very systematic method of how he addresses questions and answers them. It's very much like what he did in um, the book of Romans. In Romans, I remember there was a word and I'm, try I'm trying to scramble for it, um, but there was a way that people in the, um, in the Greek world, how they handled questions how, and how they would systematically go through things. And often what would happen is they would start with a question, a diatribe. I think that's what it's called, a diatribe. It came to me. Thank you, Lord. See, God does that so well. Okay, so what they do is they start with a question. And so uh, in this case, we have a general question about what going on in chapter 15. Resurrection and what was the what was the problem with these people? What was it that they were believing about resurrection? That there was no resurrection at all. So that's where Paul starts, and then what he does is as he begins to discuss this resurrection, he starts with the with the fundamental part of it, but then he himself is able to say, you know what? The then your next question might be this, and so he moves on to the next part of it. He starts to break it down into smaller pieces. He's, he's basically doing like almost what we do in inductive Bible study. You know, takes the big picture, gets that overview, and then he starts digging in on each of the points so that he clarifies everything. So what we end up with then is we have this general question, and he handles the, the major part of it. He hits, hits it in four different ways. And then he actually even restates some new questions so that they understand what it is he's talking about next. And he handles three more questions right there in the very last two paragraphs. So just knowing that alone when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 should be very helpful to you. Because what you're seeing is how he is systematically addressing the question of the bigger subject. Of resurrection okay so once you know that then what we do is uh, with Paul he actually handles this from this I got this out of a commentary and it was great so I'm using it because it, it was very well um, explained the first quality of his apologetics on this subject is he addresses the subject of resurrection from a, hist a historical argument did you notice that What's going on in verses 1 to 11? When you titled your little box there, what did you come up with? There, there, say it again. Yes, the, there is a risen Christ. Okay, yes. And actually, how do you know? How do you know there is a risen Christ? According to Scripture, there was going to be one. And what else? There you go. 
all those witnesses. Do you guys remember when we did the Gospel of John? That was one of the things we spent a great deal of time on was talking about the eyewitnesses and why John's testimony was so valid was because of the eyewitnesses. And historically, through the through the generations after the era of John even had passed, there were um, no there was no one who had ever really refuted except for one, if I remember correctly, and that person was shut down in a heartbeat by all the eyewitnesses. So the eye, how important do you think that eyewitness account is then? Significant, right? Is what does Paul tell them about the eyewitness? By the way, concerning this subject of resurrection. Yes. Yeah. There you go. That's the one I was trying to hit on. The fact that, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, if you now that you bring it up, Jerry, who was the first eyewitness of his resurrection? A woman. Isn't that amazing how God did that? And I do think that w- that God had a purpose and plan and that he does in everything, right? But th- to elevate women because God knowing how the generations would go and how, how the nations would go and how the attitudes of, of people's men versus women would go, God elevated the women, I think, deliberately to make sure that there was an understanding men and women are equal. Have we already discussed that? In this particular one, do you remember what subject matter that was on? Head coverings. That in Christ, what? There is no male nor female. God equalized it, in, and in the, the spiritual gifting as well. That's right. So um, when it comes to the eyewitness, we have, we have this statement that he says, um, after that, to more than 500 brethren at one time, right? And he said, most of whom remain until now. So what does that mean to these Corinthians at that moment? That's right. Literally, Paul is, is challenging them. He's saying, go talk to them. I'm, I'm good with that. There's, there were more than, not only were there more than 500, there were a lot. So let's just look at this on the whole. He says, first of all, he starts out talking to them uh, historically, from a historical perspective. So let's write that on here. His argument it's, is a historical one, a historical argument. This is how he apologetically handles it. So he says to them about the message of the resurrection, how does he how does he quantify that or qualify that? What does he say about it in those first two verses? Yeah, this was the gospel which I preached to you. And by the way, what? You received it. It's what you believed, right? So he starts out there. That's a historical record. He's going, look, first let's get it on the record. This is what I preached to you, and you believed it, and in it by which you are saved, right? So it's the, it's the gospel I preached. 
to you, right? And so that's kind of the, the starting place. And he says, no, he says, which you received, right? He's really, he's nailing them right to the, he's really nailing their feet to the ground on this, though, because he's saying, look, this is where we started, folks. Historically, this is where we were established as a church, or you were established as a church. I preached it, you believed it, you received it, that it's that by which you stand in and by which you are saved. So in which you stand... Verse 1, and by which also you are saved. I love making these kinds of lists, though, because all of a sudden it starts to take a kind of a flowing sentence, and it just sort of, it makes it linear. It makes it more, it's like a bullet, bullet points. And so you start following the, uh, the logic of what he's trying to address with them. And so he starts out with this historical record. And then he tells us what it is. And I'm not going to write this part down. It's too lengthy. But what are the two fundamentals about Christ's gospel that they were given? Or, or three things, I guess it was. Three things. Yep. Christ died for your sins, by the way, according to Scripture, right? Christ was buried right? And Christ was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Okay, so he gives, let's see, let me put on this. So Christ, I'm just going to put it this way. Christ, uh, Christ, uh, I'm going to put on here the testimony, maybe, the testimony, the gospel testimony. of Christ. Okay. He I guess I have to put it on here because in order for the flow to make he died, he was buried and he rose. He was raised. Okay. All of this according to scripture. I'm sorry, I didn't realize I, I kind of do have to have this on here in order for us to go into the next part. And then it's a great big and. And now, the, so these are the two historical arguments that he begins with. From there, once he establishes, look, Jesus, he died, he was buried, and he was raised. And that's the gospel that you believed. And he says, and by the way, beyond that, what? Pardon? He was seen. Christ and Christ was seen. Okay. So now he was seen by who? Now you can make a nice long list, and he goes through and he says who? Mm -hmm. So we have Cephas. We have who? The 12 apostles. Uh, 500. More than... More than 500, right? Most of whom remain. All right. And he says, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all to who? 
So I'm just going to go dot, 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 because we can, that whole lengthy list is all given to you out there. It's not needful. Now, this is what I found was interesting. He mentions um, these 12 called the apostles. Did anybody do a word study on that by chance? Does anybody, had, okay, you didn't. What, what is an apostle? There you go. By its very definition, the early, the, when you're making reference to the 12, it's speaking of those who actually had an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection, that he was, and, men, and for the most part, if you go back and you look, I, I pulled up tons of scriptures on the subject of the resurrection, um, and in there you see all these people who were the eyewitnesses, but amongst the 12 specifically, when they were even trying to replace Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Christ, what were the qualifiers to get them in as a as a potential uh, person to to take his place? Do you remember? One of them was he'd had to have seen him, have been with him during his ministry, had witnessed some of the miracles that he did, would have have seen or been present for his. Um, crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. This qualified them for the 12 apostle apostleship area, right? But then, la then Paul says, but I, who am I? I'm also an apostle. And why does he get to claim that he's an apostle? Because Jesus because he actually saw the resurrected Lord. Jesus actually appeared. Now, it was a supernatural thing. It was a, um, it was a unique kind of, of uh, um, salvation record that we have in the book of Acts. But interestingly, upon his, we have a pivotal change in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 9 on. The whole thing is about Paul and how Paul testifies to the resurrected Lord, right? And then he goes about writing all these amazing things that we have to study out of now. So if you look in the scriptures, what you see about the, uh, the word apostle itself, eyewitness. And since we know how important that is, if you're looking at a historical argument concerning the resurrection, you have a, a, an eyewitness record of those who actually saw the resurrected Lord. And not only an eyewitness, he said, they are most of whom still remain. So you can go back and check this out. Correct? So that's his first point. Point one, we all preach Christ resurrected and so you believe. Let's just put that on there as a closing. That's in verse 11. We all preach Christ uh, resurrected. And so you believe. Okay, or at least you said you did, right? <laughs> Correct? Okay, so that's point one. Good? Any other questions on that first section? Any other points of interest that you saw in there? No? Okay, so we're going to move on to the next paragraph. Again, the subject is resurrection. And he just goes on to, the n uh, to present his uh, apologetics. Now he's going to handle it from a logical argument. Okay, so this one is logic.
I want to go back and and redo my whole observation worksheet and make it cleaner because it's really a mess now. <laughs> but taking these titles at, to follow the flow of thought in there, I think these are really great. Wh whoever this author was that, that came up with this, it was really brilliant. And what he did is he analyzed each point after, after writing this much down. Can you see that's a historical point? Yeah. So, I mean, it really makes great sense once you get the flow of thought going on this. Okay, so the next point is it's a logical one. Now, what is his logic and what is the point that he makes in uh, the verses 12 to 19? Right. So so, yeah, so what is the point? After actually, we started a conversation over here earlier before the rest of you were coming, and we were sa they were saying, uh, uh, who was it that brought that up? And they said that, um, um, right, right. The fact that he just died for the sins was sufficient, so why does, so, it's not, apparently it's not a pivotal point in the, the storyline of the resurrection. How would you counter that if you were given that kind of a input? If you were reading that commentary, would you have believed him? <laughs> Immediately your gut goes, oh, that's not good. Why? Okay. Yes, there, absolutely. That it is our hope. It is what, after all, of what value is it if there's only this life and you die and it's done? Right? And what else concerning the resurrection? What is the, the real function of the resurrection in regarding our gospel message? Yeah. Very good. You're, we're, all, we're getting warmer now. Now go back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis 3. What happened in the garden? What was the state of humanity prior to chapter 3? Eternal life. Isn't that an amazing thought to think of, that God actually created us for eternal life, that before sin entered into the world, had Adam and Eve not sinned, we would, we would live eternally. That is an amazing thought. And so the very f act of sin, what happened as a consequence? Death. So death is a consequence of the sin. So if that's true, then if the fix is Jesus' death, what value is it if there's not the resurrection to follow? It's like, okay, so Jesus died too. Okay, right? If he died too and he stayed dead, What's the point of him dying? It means nothing. It res As a matter of fact, Paul makes a statement later. He says, what does it profit? Right? You could apply that to this point here too. What does it profit if there's no resurrection? If it's just that he died for our sins and that's all, okay, yes, that's wonderful. We died for our sins, but he died for our sins, so what? We could go to the grave and be dead and just non-existence? I got to tell you do, you, do you guys ever encounter people who actually do believe that that is the case? I, I spoke with, I told you guys this last week, with a, a friend of mine who's 
her history is Jewish, and she believes that when you die, you're just dead. Yeah. No, that's not Jews, but she, that's her mind, her mindset, her, her problem with the gospel message at all, or, or God, I, is what I really should say, her real problem with God is that how could he have let the Jews go through this terrible Holocaust and so forth. So again, it's all about not seeing the perspective of free will and man's part in it and how God, you know, allows us to have these free, the free will. But in, re in response to that, then God will also, he's righteous, he's just, but it's not love if it's not a free will choice, right? But she can't let go of that. She really, she can't let go of that anger that the Jews had to go through that. So in our conversation, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, Lisa, I, I don't think she has. Yeah. Right. Yes. And it's, and it's also true on a smaller scale, it, you know, smaller because that was a really huge one. But even in personal lives, you think about family members that die and you think, wow, I know that often when we have tragedy come, one of the first things we do is, is, you know, our, our, our emotional side says, God, why, you know, why this or why that? And it's very easy if you don't have faith in God, that God is a loving God, a righteous God, that he has a bigger plan. If you don't know the totality of who your God is, it would be very easy to fall back and say, well, you know, I don't see him as loving. And so in her case, she, I asked her, I said, so, w you know, when you die, what do you think happens to you? And she says, I'm just dead. So that point, in a way, is kind of what's going on here with these believers in this Corinthians church. Whatever the counter message has been given to them um, that Paul is fighting against here, he's saying, look, you have to understand there was, first of all, there was eyewitness. He was, he was resurrected. But secondly, you have to understand that if Christ has not been risen, then what's the point to anything? That particular point in the gospel message is pivotal to all the rest of the storyline. Nothing else matters or makes any sense. There's no point to Christian faith without resurrection. Yes. 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 Right. So let's get this up here. So uh, if there is no resurrection of the body, if there is no resurrection, not even Christ was raised. Now, I think it's interesting that he starts there because what is he, what is he doing when he makes this statement? It's following on the heels of what? All these eyewitnesses. So it's almost a contrast statement here. He said, wait a minute, we've already had the eyewitnesses, and now you're saying, and so you're either calling all these people liars about what they saw, or, it, or he actually is risen. And because it's the basis, the crux, it's the heart of the gospel message itself. He says, if there is no resurrection, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then, then the second point is our preaching is what? 
it's vain. There's no point to it. And your faith is? Yeah. Okay, so if God did not, not raise Christ as well as everything else, this, the, the next little subtlety that he takes there is about him per himself personally. He has come to them earlier in the book, I think way back in like chapter 6 or something, he expresses to them that he's their spiritual father, right? And that he wants them to follow him, right? And um, the, he, he considers himself worthy of being the example that they should follow because he himself follows Christ. So if all these things are true, but yet if my message is not true, if what I've told you was not true, then what? If Christ did not raise, then concerning my witness about God, what? I'm a false witness. So now you've taken me from being your father in the faith, someone that you respected and believed, and now what you're really saying to me is I'm a liar. I'm a false witness against God because I've said about this that God did. So number one, if there's no resurrection, not Christ was not raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and I'm a false witness. Um, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Now, what does it mean to perish? Now we, this word comes up in chapter 15, verse 18. He says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ then have perished. So it, it, to make sure that you really understand what he's, what he's saying in here, helps to do those word studies. Again, perish, what do you think that means? Good for you. Nice job. Okay, so it gives you kind of a, a variety of things. For sure, I think it's interesting, one of the thi the choices there is that you would, what it was, that you're going to hell, is that what it says, basically? Now, why is that actually a possible good interpretation for here, that you're in hell? Possibly. But yet, in itself also causes another problem. But what does he say to them? If Christ has not died and been raised again, then what? You're still where? In your sin. So if you're still in your sin, and if God has said other, where, other places, this is interesting. This is where I always um, talk about don't cherry pick the gospel message and don't cherry pick God's word on the whole either. Because if on the one hand you're going to believe the, all the rest of this that God says in his word, but on this one subject you're going to say no, 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 then the problem is, is what is the consequence of saying yes yes to all of this but then no to this one point in this case it's going to be that you on the one hand you're saying no there's no resurrection so when you die what according to the rest of the gospel you're going to go to hell you're still in darkness you're still in your sin 
right? Because if without the resurrection, he is equating the resurrection really almost on an equality with the blood, the act of the blood sacrifice itself. That they are they are in unison. They are they have a, a co-equal balance in this work that he did at the cross. His his blood was shed for the remission of sin, but without the resurrection, then it had it did not have its effect. It was um, impotent in its purpose. Does that make sense? So he's telling them that you can't have both sides. He says, I am, a, if, if that resurrection did not happen, I'm not only a false witness, but um, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have actually perished. One of the other definitions on that is simply to cease to exist. Did you think of that one? Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because when I talked with my friend and that was her words, well, you just, you're just, you just cease to exist. You just die. And I thought, wow, that's scary. Uh -huh. And uh, it also is not true because scripture t teaches us that we are created in the image of God. And one of the images that we are created in God's image is his eternality. We are created to be eternal souls, not the body, but the soul, right? And as eternal souls, this is why whether you come into faith or, or whether you don't, you have an eternity. It's where will you be for that eternity is the question, right? Okay. Have perished, cease to exist. Okay, so. It, it removes so much of the gospel message and so many other passages i mean the uh, the old testament is loaded with scriptures that talk about the eternal glory that we're going to have with god the father and about heaven and about e this eternal life and so yeah you are going to you're going to lose 50 percent um, uh, you know of what the scripture teaches us about our relationship with god the purpose for enduring in this life and doing good works even also, as we've learned in 1 Corinthians 3, is for the reward in, w at what point? Right here and now? No, an eternal reward, a reward which is imperishable and will, that will not pass away. It's a, it's a crown that endures, and that is what we are looking forward to. So there, again, is one more small piece of, of the gospel truth that gets put aside or gets gets erased basically if you don't believe there's a resurrection so you you are damaging so many other aspects of the gospel message if you take that one thing out right okay so in the end in verse 19 he says what he kind of concludes it if this is true then what mm-hmm Why do you think he says that? I mean, it's not just the idea of we've we've lost our um, eternal plans, but what else? Any other thoughts? Well, 
Why, why should we be pitied? Say it again. Yes. Think about the lot. The, what is the Christian life like for, and in particular, in the early church for these apostles specifically who were really uh, taking the heat, so to speak, of this transformation from Judaism into Christianity, where where it had you know the the gospel message was really being birthed through them, at what expense? very very difficult path and journey to walk on and if if this resurrection that they're claiming is not true we are of all men to be pitied the most right because we we are hanging our hats on this concept that there's going to be a reward there's going to be an eternal life there's going to be a glory after this and if that's not true we're to be pitied most of all because boy we are suffering the here and now for nothing right Absolutely nothing. Okay. Right. Jesus himself in his earthly ministry makes this claim that he would. Exactly. Okay, our next one is going to be a theological argument, the next section that he covers in verses 20 to 28. What is the major subject in this passage? Okay, the resurrection of the dead. And how does he take it and make it theological rather than um, uh, on some other subject level, what I, what about the first fruits makes it a theological message? Right. So it was already something established in their law. So he goes to a point of context of their thinking about the about law and about order and about process that God established already previous to this point even previous to Christianity's birthing they understood the concept of first fruits and so now he's taking that theological understanding that they have from their old system in the law or you know even though these are Gentiles they still understood these things apparently were taught them very well and probably ex experienced it a lot just by rubbing shoulders with those who practiced it on a regular basis but he takes that theological subject from the law of first fruits and pulls it over and lays it on top of the new covenant in Christ Jesus and he makes an a, a direct application to it so what is what is it theologically that he tells us then okay so Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruit of those who are asleep. Now, what is asleep? What's dead? The body, the physical body's dead. Is the soul dead? Does the soul ever die? No. Isn't that amazing? That, ama that is amazing. And the fact that you know that 
I'm impressed. Because I can tell you that even in the Christian church, there are a lot of people who do not really grab hold of that. And I think it's because it's just not really discussed. But your soul never dies. Your body dies, but your soul does not. And this is one of the reasons 1 Corinthians 15 is such a significant passage to teach in the, in the church today, is to, to differentiate between the statements that are being made in here about the dead. What is it that's dead? The body. So and whenever then he makes the, the, the progressive thought and he takes you to the next part of that and he says, so and when it's raised, what is it that's raised? When you're raised up, what are you, what's raised? The body is raised, right. So you have a body that dies and a body that is raised. Now I'm just going to give you a little tip on something that I think is absolutely essential for anyone who's got a Bible and wants to handle 1 Corinthians 15 well. Every time you see the word raised and every time you see the word dead, make a little stick man. This is how I've done it on mine. Um, I just make a stick man like that on, on top. And then I use whatever other symbol I'm using for the word raised. So it goes right on top of that other symbol. So if you've colored it purple or green or orange or whatever color, put a stick man on top of that. Every time you see the word raised and every time you see the word dead. Because that is going to help you keep your mindset on the subject, that the subject here is about the dead body. The subject is about the body that's raised, okay? Because the soul never dies. When you die, what happens to your soul? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when you die, your soul does not die. Your soul, it's, a, it's an immediate translation. You go from being in the presence of this world to, to the, into the presence of the Lord. How many of you have ever heard about bed, bedside um, uh, deaths where people have said they've seen just the face of a person at death's door? They light up. They, they see something. There's just, you know, if they're in faith. And likewise, is true on the other side, those who are not, they're, they're in horror because what, is, what are they seeing? eternity in hell. They're seeing the darkness that they're going to be stepping into. So what, what you have to understand about those two words in 1 Corinthians 15 is both of them are, are affixed to the word body. So almost you could write the word body in there if you wanted to. Everywhere you see the, the, the word raised, right, the body is raised. Everywhere you see that the body, that something is dead, it is the dead body. Okay? That's going to help clarify so much in 1 Corinthians 15 for you. Okay, it's a little trick, and I don't remember who taught that to me. I wish for the life of me I could remember some teacher somewhere along the line. It may have been my friend Anne, but I think I knew it before that. But it, it, it has to be implemented in there in a visual way so that you don't lose track because it's so easy to start reading that and miss it. Your, your mind just leaves the physical body and goes to being just dead, and we in our mind trans translate right into the soul quality. We, you know, we, our soul is dead and our soul is going to be raised because we picture ourselves rising up to heaven. No, but your body isn't. When you die, your body stays here. It's dead. It's in the ground. That's why it's, they say it sleeps. The body is at rest. But where is the soul? With the Lord. Okay? 
All right, so a theological argument here. Christ has been right. He's the first fruit. So now what do we learn about this? Interesting to me is that he doesn't go back into the Old Testament um, discussion about what they did for first fruits or what that actually meant, but rather he takes it to a, a, a doctrinal teaching about federal headship and about um, the first Adam and the second Adam, right? So what do we learn about uh, the first fruits? He says it's a the theological argument, and then he uses that word for, correct? What does he say for? For what? Yes, that is exactly what it is. Uh, since by a man death came, and that's in 21. And that was, in the who is that in? Who is that man? Adam. Adam is that man. Then he says, by a, a man also. Came resurrection. And who is that man? Jesus. Okay, so we have a man here, and we have another man here, right? Uh, so this is, this is Christ. Okay, so we clarify that part. Interesting, so he shows us that this, there's a federal headship move, and this actually takes us back into uh, Romans chapter 5, where this is also taught there as well. And for those of you who did Romans with me, that was a fun adventure to get work that thing through. But what an insight that is. What is it about that federal headship? What if you are, concerning humanity, where do we all start? We're in Adam. We are born physical human beings, and we are in the image of, of the flesh, of the humankind, right? And so if we stay there, if we don't move to a relationship in Jesus Christ, where are we then as men? Where does that spiritually put us? Dead in our sins. We remain dead in the flesh, right? We're in the image of the, of the man Adam, who, by the way, is the symbolic uh, bearer, or what do they call it? The banner bearer, carrier, whatever, of, of sin that was entered through what he and uh, Eve did, which was to rebel against God and to sin. So if we don't move from that, we are in our sins because we are under his authority. We are under his headship, right? But by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ, what happens? When we enter into a covenant, we leave that relationship of the old, we die to that, and we enter into relationship in Jesus Christ, and now what? We are now in Christ. We are now in that new federal uh, headship of relationship. We are under the banner now of Jesus Christ. And because he came and was resurrected, now what do we have our hope for? A resurrection, right? So through Adam, sin came, death came. And through Christ, he died for our sins that we might be resurrected. All right. Then it goes on to give us an order. What does he say about this order? 
this one, this part was interesting from 23 all the way down through um, 26. At first, I didn't quite catch what was going on. It seemed to me like he kind of went off on a, a um, well, he starts with something that's good. He gives two points. What is the order? Because th that is good, the order. Let's write that down. Number one, what? Christ is first. Because, by the way, first fruits means what? The first portion of, in the case of the crops, it was the first portion of the, the, it was the first pick of the crops of the new season, right? Okay, so Christ, the first fruits. By the way, um, first fruits, when does that fall in their seasons of uh, festivities? In, uh -huh, and so we have, pa we have Passover. Somebody open that in their Bibles. Do you have it handy? So, I'm sorry, say it again. Yeah, well, there's going to be Pentecost. And Pentecost, is that first fruits? Okay. So somebody open up your Bible and give me that chart because I it's not in my tip of my head right now, but it did come to my mind. I want to clarify in our thinking because it's interesting. I do think it's important for you to understand that Jesus fulfilled that that feast of first fruits, right? By the work that he did upon the cross and his resurrection. And in those er, those first four feasts of the of the spring or of the yeah, the spring uh, feast is what it is. Thank you. Okay. All right, there it is. Okay, so we have Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Those all that's the first day after the Sabbath. The first fruits is the day he rose from the dead. Thank you. I had to get it in my head again. I'm sorry. It was just it was floating around in there but not quite sticking. Part I know. <laughs> I will be 62 very soon. I know. I'm getting old. My husband keeps reminding me that you're almost 62. I'm going, shush. <laughs> okay. Um, so since Christ fulfilled the first fruits, he says he, it is, he is Christ in the first fruits. He not only is the first fruits, but he also fulfilled the feast of first fruits. I think that's a pretty cool little extra note in there. So the first one is that Christ is the first fruit, and then after that is the time reference she had you marking. Number two is what? Okay, those that are Christ's at his coming. Now, can you elaborate on that a little bit for me? What does that mean? Who, who would that encompass? Okay, good. We didn't go into Thessalonians in our homework, but that's exactly right. If you go into Thessalonians, you get to see that how they actually break it down. That was what I kind of wanted to get to was, are we talking about just those that are still alive that is coming? All those who are in Christ, whether they're dead or alive. Dead or alive, though, when he comes, those who have come into faith in Jesus Christ will be resurrected. They will receive a resurrected 
body. Now, we are not going to go through the entire uh, discourse on all the different resurrections and who and when and where, but it's just suffice to know that he is simply saying those in Christ, and this is whether you are dead or alive, it doesn't matter. If you belong to him at his coming, there will be a, a resurrection for you in this order. Christ came first, later it will come us. Now, there's a, how this breaks down is technical, and it's a whole other study. But you will. That's what you need to know. You will. Christ, however, was the first person. So he's saying in a theological thing, there's, there is an order to this, right? Now, this makes me think back when you look at the system of the old temple service. When they had worship at the temple, was there order to the way things had to be done? Were there qualifiers for who could do what and where they had to stand and when they had to stand and how much and what kind and from where? Right. So all these are really theological points that he's bringing up. He's saying there is an order. So he hones in on the first fruit quality, and he's saying, look, there's an order to this. Christ had to be the first. And so that's just a given. You have to understand that. And, you, and for anybody who understands worship, they understand that in this order. Have, has Paul not been impressing upon us that in our Christian faith there's also order? There is a way to go about doing certain things and a way not to. And so he says there's an order. So in your, in your worship, in your theology, there's one teaching that's real fundamental that a lot of people, particularly if they have any experience with the, uh, the Jewish uh, system of worship, is that there was a first fruit. And there had to be the first fruit first, then the rest would come. They couldn't even finish picking the crops until they had those first fruits and they sacrificed those to the Lord. Okay? All right, so that's the order. So that's his primary thing. But now... Give me kind of a real quick rundown on after that. Can, there is a time. I wish I had a board to do it on, but there's a timeline thing that he gives you here, right? Did anybody try to put, put it all in its order? How, what did you get? Yes, he, he will. And then what happens after that? De and death will be abolished. Yes. Now, what's really interesting to me is he kind of flip-flops a few things in there. Did anybody try to do it in a linear way? Good. Give me the linear, Pat. Very good. Isn't that good? Nice job, Pat. Good job. <laughs> I like that. Now, this is interesting. Okay. We just went through a rendition of, of eschatology, right? This, that's a little mini eschatology pat pattern. And if you don't have previous history with eschatology studying, you may not be able to do what Pat just did. But it doesn't really matter. What's interesting to me, though, is in verse 26, he says, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. Now, why is that whole conversation even put into this theological argument? Why do you think that, why do we need to know about eschatology in the middle of theological explanation about why the resurrection is just? There you go. Because the whole point to this conversation about resurrection 
is that it's the body that has to be resurrected. They're arguing there is no resurrection of the body. And he's saying, no, there's a first fruit. And then there's going to be also order. There's going to be a sequential unfolding of events. And then the last thing to be finally abolished once and for all is death. Isn't that awesome? That's his theological argument. Death is going to be conquered, but it has to be in order. Christ first, you at his coming, all these other things are going to happen, and finally there's going to be an abolishing of death. So I'm just going to put on here the last enemy. is death. Okay, that's in verse 26. So I just thought that was pretty cool because it took me a while to figure this out because as I was making my list on these things and trying to put them in an order like Pat, what Pat did, um, I, I got to, when I got it all arranged, my very last statement was the last thing to be abolished was death. And I'm going, oh, death of the body. Oh, I see why he's mentioning this. Finally hit me, but it took me making my list. <laughs> Again, that list making is powerful to teach you something. It brings to the surface for you the insight that was actually there all along, but that you would miss otherwise, because otherwise you've got verse 28 that follows it, and it's 20, well, it's at 26, so you have 27 and 28 that follow that, and you could lose that bullet point that's the that's like the the symbol going clang right death is going to be abolished and that is his point to resurrection there's an order theologically this is what god has done he is the first fruit and death will one day be abolished okay because of that and if without the resurrection can that death be abolished no, it cannot. And all those other events also would not happen. If Christ is not resurrected, if he's simply dead, ceases to exist, which is an impossibility with God anyway. But if that were true, if what they were saying was true, then will there be a kingdom to come? No, there will none of these things. He, where, where he says God puts th all things in subjection under Christ's feet, I like that little caveat, God is accepted. Did you notice that one? But except for God. <laughs> I mean, everything else, but not God. Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And when the end comes, when Jesus has abolished all rule and all authority and power, then Christ hands over the, king, the keys to the kingdom. Then the Son himself will be subjected to the one, God, right, who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And that then the final uh, grand finale is that the enemy death will be abolished. Okay, now, so that's his theological argument to why we have a resurrection, why you know there's going to be a resurrection. That's exactly right. That's a, that's ex that's a per see you're using logic. You need to go talk to those Corinthians. <laughs> see, one of the thi one of the things that one of the things that he was Paul was battling I think against was they weren't reasoning things through. Like we said earlier, yeah, but if you take this one point out, then what do you do with all the rest of the message? It turns it upside down on head or it leads it devoid of meaning, right?
sweet I can't tell you how many times we have these deathbed experiences where you know and I, and I don't I can't venture to explain all of them because it's not written in the Word of God anywhere it just but these experiences of just the tenderness of God too that he would allow us to greet this new thing you know, w in the accompaniment of others of faith. And I, I think about the scriptures that says that, you know, um, there's a great cloud of witnesses, you know, in the heavens that, that they are there and they are waiting and they are, and they are anticipating what's going on. And I'm certain God is letting them know what's going on. And then t the grace of God, again, that he would allow them to be the one to call them so that there would be a familiar uh, voice and face. I just think the whole thing is, it, it's, it's also a comfort to know it's, it is good to go. It's safe to go. Um, just send me Jesus, right? All I need is the face of Jesus. I'm happy. All right. Now, all right. So let's move on to 29 to 34. Next one. Now we have one that's called experiential argument. This one's the hard one. And this is the one that gets Everybody all tied up. Okay, this is an experiential argument. So, um, the statement there is in tw 29. What does it start out telling us? What is the statement so we can get it? basically s laid out before us what's going on in this part of right so if the dead are not raised at all why then are they why are they baptized for them them who the dead right all right now what did i tell you a moment ago about the word dead whenever you see it in this context put a little stick man on it so that you know when it's talking about the dead the dead what the dead body, okay? Does that right there already help you greatly to interpret what he's speaking of here, right? Being baptized for the dead body, right? Let's look at that. If the dead are not raised, Okay, so that's in 1529. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, I want to take you on a little journey. We're going to do a how-to study little excursion. This is your how-to study book. For those of you who haven't seen it in like 100 years, please pull this book out today while this is still fresh on your mind or tomorrow, next time you sit down, and open up to Chapter 4. It's called The Search for Meaning. 
okay? This book is your lifeline to understanding how to handle accurately the Word of God. When you hit subjects like this one, what is the problem with this statement? Where, where has this verse and the misunderstanding of this verse taken us uh, in the world today? Yes, there are whole religions. Oh, tell us, Lisa, what kind of religion might that be? <laughs> she's, she's, yes, she's going to help us greatly with this. Okay, somebody asked me earlier, well, what is exact, because they don't understand enough about Mormonism to understand why this has actually been, it's kind of like what happened last week in our study about the charismatic uh, church and how it went, has gone so badly wrong in the way that they handle the gift of tongues because they're misusing it and they're misunderstanding its purpose they and also they're misunderstanding or simply ignorant of how they get a gift they have gone and perverted it and they've established an entire doctrinal church solely on that and guess what else they've done they've said all of you who speak in tongue come to me right and so the whole church is now what a tongue. There's no eyes, there's no ears, there's no hands, there's no feet, which is exactly what First Corinthians taught against. We're not all in the body having the same gift, and yet that church has now become one gift, a one gifted church, which is a serious lopsided problem. And so that's an example of that. So now here we are in another scenario. This time, it's interesting, too, to me how it follows a theological statement that we have so much theological problems with the next part here in the experiential part. Because when you're talking about being baptized for the dead, and if you aren't interpreting it right, the, the, the message to the, to the Mormon church is what in that, Lisa? How do they interpret and how do they apply it? So these are people who are already dead, and then you are baptized by proxy, or? Oh, really? You can actually be baptized for living people now, too. Oh, wow. They've, they've taken it to a, a newer height, huh? Interesting. It's kind of like as a new market. <laughs> it's just to cover your, your uncle that you really love and really want in there. Um, Interesting. It's kind of the, the charismatic church has kind of done that too with the Charles Craft movement, where they've taken the charismatic movement and moved it into this. The, uh, uh, well, it's a whole nother level, but yeah. So it's new and improved, <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right. So um, in your How to Study book, they are going to give you guidelines on how to handle a difficult subject. There are two things that you already know. I've told you guys like seven hundred gazillion trillion times. N two pillars. What are they? Never violate your known doctrine and context rules for interpretation. If you don't hold those two solidly in place, it's going to collapse on your head for sure, okay? And then on top of that, there are additional steps that you can take, if you, particularly if you've got something that's really challenging. And so what's really funny is I find that some, they all, they, almost all of them do start out really challenging, but at some point as you go through the processes and do these steps, 
when when the realization of the answer comes to you, you go, well, that's really easy. Why is that a problem for anybody? You know, it, it becomes so obvious to you what the answer is once you start doing it. But these tools are your impartial, benign kind of things that you make application into your work, your homework process, which helps you to become balanced and and clear thinking and as impartial as possible, we all bring presuppositions to the table. We all do. Every one of us. Me, 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 all the time. Um, and, and when I do, usually if I go back to this and start following these, this process, this solves it for me every single time. And then I go, <laughs> you know, why did I do that? I fell for that. Why did I do that? I know better, right? But just so you know, it's it, it, this is both the fun and the frustration of doing some of these more serious kinds of Bible studies when you really want to dig it out. What happens, I think, for most people in Christianity is we have a lesson that's taught to us by someone that we respect, and then we just grab hold of it and say, well, I like this person, and I, so I'm going to stand here with them and someone else. And this is what the Church of Corinth was doing. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas, right? And he was saying, he's saying, no, be of God. Uh, Paul, in one of his other letters, or I think it's in Acts, he says, be like the Bereans, right? Rece hear what I have to say, but then research it out for yourself to see with, if what I say is true. So here's your how-to guideline. Chapter 4, um, you have overviewed the text so that you understand its context, okay? You have to have done that first. Uh, you know what it says, you analyze it, and you know the why behind it. Then he says, here are some seven basic principles. And I'm not going to write them down because they're in your book. I hope you get a book, right? Principle one, remember that context rules. Just said that. Number two, always seek the full counsel of God's word. So in other words, if someone is coming to a, an interpretation that the dead here is speaking about baptizing for a dead person other than yourself, right, that you're baptizing for someone else who's already dead, where else in the Word of God does it teach us that? Nowhere. Zilp, zitch, nada, right? All right, so that's number two. You c absolutely, it's going to be one of the things that you're going to want to do. You want to do a full, pro which, first of all, you, it's best, which we've done, we're lucky, be, because God, lucky, God has been really gracious to us. We've done the whole book. So we really do have the context of this book set out. We understand why he's writing, to whom he's writing, what all their problems are. We understand the immaturity of them. We understand they're followers of men, not of God. They're, infant, they're infants in their faith. They've not matured like they should. We see them doing all kinds of incorrect ex, uh, execution within the a corporate worship system. He's had to go along and correct all these things that they've been doing wrong. I praise God for that. I was thinking that this morning and, and thanked the Lord for it because I thought, you know, thank you, God, that they actually had these problems at this church because Paul had to write it down for us because humanity doesn't really change. As generation by generation, these problems are going to creep up for every church at various times. So now we have a book that shows us, but we have looked at the whole context. And so that's what he says. You need to understand the full context, and you need, and you need to understand also the full counsel on that one subject. So whatever your subject is, you might want to do some cross-referencing, which is what I did. I went in, and I've made several sheets front and back of scriptures about baptism. 
on the subject of it just to see what it says. Nowhere does it say anything about being baptized for the dead in any other verse. Okay. Now, he, the, the next thing it says, um, you have to remember that scripture will never contradict scripture. If it looks like it does, it's because you're misinterpreting one or the other. So you just got to get that ironed out. But if you go into it already pre, uh, with a predisposition of knowing that Scripture does not contradict Scripture, you're already going to be in a good place because when you think you have a contradiction, you're immediately going to pull back from that and go, okay, I'm missing something here. And you can dig it out further, okay? So that's the third principle. The fourth one is do not base your doctrine on an obscure passage of Scripture. Now that's not... Well, actually, that could apply here because church, the, ch the Mormon church did base an entire doctrine <laughs> to some degree on this particular verse. At least within the church itself, they have this doctrine as one of its tenets. You know, we don't do that. You don't see us in, in a Judeo-Christian church, in our church system here as a Bible-believing church. We don't baptize for other people who have died. It's not seen in the Christian churches. So just remember that that do, that you don't want to uh, base your doctrine on an obscure passage. Uh, number five, you're going to interpret Scripture literally according to the text that you're in. So if you're in a text that is intended to be interpreted literally, you're going to interpret it literally. You wouldn't want to do that if you're looking at a prophecy statement or poetry. You want to look at the, the um, type of literary form you're looking at. But where are we in 1 in Corinthians? What kind of book is this? It's a letter. And is how do you interpret letters? Literally. <laughs> Factually. It's a, it's a, it, he is not trying to hide things or twist things. So he's making straightforward statements. As a matter of fact, he's in this case being so straightforward that he almost becomes obscure because he just assumes you understand the subject matter that he's on, okay? So that's another thing. The other thing is, number six, look for the author's intended meaning of the passage. Well, one of the ways for us to do that, to understand the intended meaning when you're talking about the subject of raised and dead, right? How would you interpret what's going to be raised here? If we've marked it, throughout the whole book in the same way, how did we mark the word raised previously? So if you're going to just take it at face value, take it literal, and not try to go into some strange... What a lot of these commentaries have done is they've gone off into um, um, research, and maybe they were doing research on uh, Corinth and other religions in the area, and that's what kind of struck their mind and started pulling them in that direction, then they just laid it on top of it and made an application. But if you try to basically wash that away from yourself, clear your mind and your thinking, go back to the pure principles of what this author is doing, look at the flow of thought, and you can start at the beginning and just progressively look through. Who, what is he talking about? He's talking about resurrection of what? of the dead, the resurrection of the body. So that which is raised is the body. Uh, and, and he says, and if they are being, if the dead are not raised, and what is the dead? The dead body. 
okay? So once you do that, that's the first step to already coming to a sound interpretation. Uh, so look for the author's intended meaning. And then the last one is check your conclusions by using reliable commentaries. Ooh, that's a hard one because I got to tell you, uh, s something was said to me somewhere this last week um, about no one person has full revelation. No teacher does. I don't, you don't, no one does. We each have a, a portion of it. And certainly we, we have the written word of God. And if we hang on to that first and foremost, we're in the safest place we can be. I can only tell you that I have taken this verse and I have used these steps, applied it to it, and I'm going to show you how it it pans out at the end of this. And then you have to make your own decision. You have to be a Berean and go back to, to the Word of God yourself and say, is what she's showing me truthful? Okay? So one of the things that it says is read it literally and work with the literary style that you're working with, right? So in that, there's also the quality of some of these specific words that are used in here. What is the first word in 1529? Oh, interesting. So he starts, here's a, here's a point that I say otherwise. Okay, what does otherwise tell you? Okay, it's do you know that that word, if you do a word study on it, it's a conjunction? It's just like the word therefore, for this reason, okay? So if it's saying otherwise or for this reason, what does that do with that very first verse in 29? Grammatically, in your flow of thought, what does that do? It connects it to what came before it, right? So that means he's saying otherwise about all of this. Uh, Jesus having been the first fruits, that he is the first fruits, that the last enemy that's going to be abolished is, is death, right? Otherwise, what? It connects what's so. Otherwise, I'm just going to put that on here. It connects. 29:34 back to it's actually 1 through 28 all of it. It, it this otherwise is actually everything that's been said right the whole flow of thought that that uh, there's there have been eyewitnesses so historically it's, it's a proven thing there's a logical process that is that um there has to be a resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then your whole faith is just pointless, right? Theological argument, he's the first fruits. This is, this is the order in which things have to be done, and there is an order. God is a God of order. Actually, we've seen him say that in this, in this text already. And he's saying, so with that in mind, with that theology in mind, God's a God of order. God's a God who's designed. Remember, in the, even in the church, God places them where he wants them. It's God's choice. So now God has an order. Christ first, then you at his coming. And he's saying, and then the last thing that's going to be done is this death of, uh, ab abolishing of death. And he says, otherwise, now he makes this statement, otherwise what? Paul just stated in the, pre the previous paragraph that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected. And then he questions otherwise, 
why would you participate in baptism if you don't believe there's a resurrection? Does that make sense? That is actually the interpretation of this verse right here. It worked itself out with just basically a couple of little points. Remembering your context, remember your author's purpose, you know what the flow of thought is, you know what his major subject is, you've marked your key words so that you get the same consistency in it. You're not switching when you get to verse 29 and you think that the dead here uh, that are going to be raised or not raised is a new subject matter about something else in another religion or of another of another activity that this church is involved in. He's talking about the same subject matter, which is resurrection of the dead body. So once you've cleared that up. Now, I want to go through symbolism because this is interesting. The, the idea that they were, he was um, challenging them about why would you be baptized if you don't think that there's a resurrection? Why is he saying that? Well, what is the symbolism in baptism? What's the purpose of it? Okay, so the first thing that happens when a person is baptized is you lower them into the water, yes? And when they're lowered into the water, what is that symbolic of? Several things. That you have died. Died how? What? We have died to sin. Also, okay, that we have died to sin, yes, and also, pardon? That we have died with Christ. That Christ died for sins. So you kind of got to get all the pictures in there. Christ died for sins. We are now dead to sins. We, are, we have died to living a life of sin, right? Our testimony is of Christ's death for sin, our identification with Christ in his death. And now that we're in this covenant with him, Christ, with Christ, we testify that we have died to sin. That is Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, by the way. Right, Lisa, who's teaching Romans right now. <laughs> okay, so that's the first part. He's saying, why are you, are you teaching this baptism? The second part is this, coming up out of the water. What does that teach? Yep, see, you do know something, Shirley. See, she said she wouldn't have any answers. I knew you'd. I'm that, done, that was it. She's just a visitor, and she knows already so much. <laughs> okay, so, okay, you, so coming up out of the water, you are um, repeated again, Shirley. It's death, burial, resurrection. So it's about Jesus's resurrection symbolically. Is that not what coming up out of the water? We're symbolically representing what Christ did, which was raised from the dead. Yes, and what else are we symbolically representing? There you go. Raised to walk in the newness of life or to a new life, right? Dead to sin, alive to God. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be said in this, but the symbolic statement in that, in the, in the rising up out of the water, is the statement symbolically of what subject matter? Resurrection. He, it, he is actually saying about the church, why are you all being baptized if you don't believe in a resurrection? Well, be, for them, the body, 
them dead bodies. For them dead bodies that go in the ground and cease to exist, why are you being baptized for them? Them is the dead body. You don't, well, put, put, put your little stick man on your words, and all of a sudden it switches your mind from being another people group to being the body. And w- I do too. Well, <laughs> yes, but do you remember what I said a minute ago? I think sometimes Paul just assumes, as a matter of fact, is um, in the next uh, section he calls them fools because I really think that he just expected that they were following him. He's talking about the resurrection of the body. And so why are you baptized for those bodies? He didn't say for those bodies, for them is what he says. Why would you be baptized for those bodies if you don't believe there's a resurrection? There were, Pat, there were. And the answer is no. It's a. Right. Well, he is. Oh, absolutely. He is. He's saying it's ridiculousness. Why would you go through the process of an identity? You know, baptism, just like taking the Lord's Supper, is a symbolic gesture. It's a, it's a, uh, we call it an ordinance, right? It's a church ordinance. It's actually only two things that have been instituted for us to do uh, from Christ. One is the Lord's Supper. The other is baptism. Why would you do baptism, which symbolically pictures dying and being resurrected if you don't believe in a resurrection that he's basically saying duh you guys really why would you do that so this is why he is saying experientially he is giving an argument why are you doing this this experiential thing of baptizing if you don't even believe there is a, a resurrection because that's what baptism depicts so what I did was when I was doing my homework I started out, I'll just show you on my page. Jesus is the first fruits, right? So I showed, I just drew a stick picture of Jesus resurrecting from the tomb as the first fruits, okay? Then what I did when I got over onto the next section was I showed a symbolic picture of us being baptized, being lowered down into the water and being resurrected again. I also think if you draw the concept out, with stick figures, mine is not as good as yours would be, Susan, but it's close. <laughs> no, not. <laughs> but I think that when you, once your mind gets off of what these commentaries are bringing to the table, see what the commentaries that I have looked at that I really think have lost it, it uh, have done, is they're reaching for straws. They're grasping outside of the immediate text to try to say what's being said, rather than looking at the internal. This word otherwise is huge. He's connecting what he said before to where he is here. If you've marked your words dead and raised with the body, you're still in the same subject matter. That's going to be significantly help. That's two points. Number three, there is no other teaching in Scripture that talks about about people that are being baptized for other people. If If it had been in the word, it would say it's wrong and it doesn't work because... By the way, who, ca- who gets to determine whether or not you have salvation? I mean, how is that process to work? Can I do that for you? Can you, by osmosis, because you're my child, be, can I take my kids to heaven if I want to? 
No, it's an individual, personal relationship. You must put your faith on Jesus Christ, and then he works the power. Of course, it's, you know, salvation is all his work, not ours. But, but our faith is what is, the, is this motor that has to be in place. It's that quality that must be there. Faith must be there. God will give you the faith. You must be willing to bow the knee. And if you bow the knee to God, you believe that God is, that he's a rewarder of those that love him, then by faith he will bring you into this thing of salvation. Your baptism, your act of baptism is a symbolic picture of that. Why are you being baptized if you don't believe that? So he's kind of poking fun at him in a way. And then he goes another part. Then if you don't think that's enough, he follows it on. Now you tell me this. Why would he talk in this verse 29 about something that has to do with another religion from another place, if that's how you're interpreting it, right, about some kind of pagan practice of baptizing for other dead bodies? What does the next part of that statement have to do with it then? How are, how are they connected? What does he say in verse 30 to 33, that, or 30 and through 32? Right. Why would I do these things which I am doing? Okay. Why would you do that about baptism? And why would I do this? And what is it that he's saying that he does? Yeah. He's he's really living a life of sacrifice. Now, in baptism, is there any picture of that? Dying to self and being raised to walk in the newness of life. So again, it's back to the same subject matter, but he's saying, look, I've died too daily. I died to myself. I died to selfishness. I died to my own plans. I died to having my own way on things. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I do all things to win some, just like he has said in previous chapters. So here he's saying that there are two things he's doing. Number one, why are you being baptized symbolic picture of death and resurrection if there is no resurrection So that was the first step, point that I made. And that's kind of my, this is not, I, I don't have a scripture verse for this, but this is my conclusion on this. Now, if you don't agree, then absolutely you have the freedom. I would suggest you use the how-to study book on chapter 4. Go through and do your apology, do it um, through a system of checks and balances and make sure you stay in there. I know that what, even if I'm off on this, I don't think I am, but if I am, um, I'm still in line with the scripture. My conclusion does not violate my known doctrines. My scripture maintains the integrity of the flow of thought. Mine maintains the integrity of the literary style and the usage of words like otherwise, which connects it to previous thought. It also maintains the same marking standard that I've already set in place, because otherwise you have one verse that's marked differently than all the other verses concerning those two words, okay? Uh, so I have like a variety of things I've done so far that uses my inductive skills that helps me come to an interpretation. And it's the most obvious, and that's one of the things that 
uh, that chapter on how on how to come to a conclusion also is is look at it and read it as literally as you can rather than jumping and assuming it means something else stick with what you're already in line with in your thinking and let that be the thing that continues your flow of thought rather than assuming he's jumped to something else assume he's sticking with the subject matter okay now the second one then is um why am i doing what i'm doing so these are experiential things why are you doing what you're doing and why am i doing what i'm doing And then he, which is, I die daily. Uh, let me get my list here. Oh, I don't have that one part. Uh, where is that verse, I die daily? He said, it's in 20, 31. Okay, 31, I die daily. Then the other thing he says in there is, I, I fought the wild beasts. Now, I'm just using those. And what, uh, what verse is that? 32. Okay, you could say basically, why am I dying to self? Why am I living sacrificially? Why, is it, why am I exercising sacrificial love? If there's no resurrection, there's going to be no reward, there's going to be no future, I'm just going to die and cease to exist, why am I doing this? experientially this makes no and then he follows it with that statement of saying uh in 32 what if the dead are not raised then let us do what let's just eat drink and be merry and it doesn't make sense at this point yeah let's yeah that's right let's just forget studying and doing homework let's just forget uh ministering to this to the my neighbor or to pe the people in my family that i love Let's just stop sending money out to the mission field or, or going on the mission field ourselves. Let's just stop it all. What's the point if there is no resurrection? That's what he's saying in this, in this particular passage. So, so now what we've seen, we've seen a historical argument, a logical argument, a theological argument, and an experiential argument. Pretty cool, huh? That's how he starts this. And then he goes into three more questions next. Yes. Become sober-minded and stop sinning. There you go. I, uh, you know what? And I have, and I, and I was trying to debate whether we had time. I have done word studies on all those major key words in this segment on what it means to have, be, have bad company corrupting good morals, what it means to, that some have no knowledge of God. What does that mean? Um, do not be deceived. Now, this one's very, I think, very in insightful also. What, what is it saying about being deceived here? Deceived about what? Yes. Basically, you have left the truth. The truth is what you believed at the beginning, that Jesus died for sins, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected. That's your doctrinal theology, and you're leaving that? Why are you deceived by these people, right? Foolishness. You are babes in faith, right? 3-1. You are being followers of men, not God, chapter 1, verse 12. 
and shamefully you're being deceived by men and your doctrines of faith are being corrupted. Bad company corrupts good morals. You're hanging with people that are teaching you there is no resurrection and you're biting off on it and believing it because you're not holding and standing firm. So he says to them, um, do not be deceived. And then he says, stop sinning. Does that make sense to you now? Stop sinning in what way? Yeah, violating the doctrines of God. And not only violating them, but denying them. Talk about a false witness. He says himself, if it's not true, I'm a false testimony. I, my testimony is false. Yes, I did. Go for it, girl. <laughs> I love that one. I did not get that. I, I love that. Wow, I need you to send that to me on a text. That one's really good. That was, I love it when they put it in, in that kind of language because it, t it makes it like, so. mine is like, um, return to soberness of mind, return to one's right senses, come back to a proper state of mind. In other words, come back to your doctrines, what you've been taught and what you, and by the way, that which you said you believed, that which saved you, right? You believed in the resurrection. Now you're denying it, right? It's, okay, so become so. I, I, this is it. And by the way, if, experientially, why are you even bothering to be baptized if you don't believe it? Why are you doing that symbolic gesture if it's something you don't believe in, right? Okay, now let's go back and here's two. I'm done with that one. I'm getting my pages mixed up. What's that? Yes, I know. This is, the, <laughs> this is it. Okay. You fools. Okay. Here, being philosophers, the Greeks reasoned that the resurrection of the human body was an impossibility. After all, when the body turned to dust, it became soil, and from which that our other, bo other bodies derived nourishment. Paul's reply to this kind of reasoning was very blunt. You fools right? So you have to, you do kind of have to understand the background on this. He's, I had to do a little commentary reading in order to kind of set that backdrop up that this is what he's countering. It isn't stated in here, but the count, the problem he's countering against is that these are people who are saying, well, it's an impossibility to resurrect a body. After all, once it dies and it goes to the ground, not only that, but it becomes food for for the nourishment for plants. After all, you're eating plants. You're actually eating your ancestors. You know, that's kind of how they thought of it. I know, it's pretty weird, huh? Okay, so he, this is the question. What, what do you think the question is here? And he, he does give it to us. So how are the dead raised? No, now we're done with that. He handled that. Now he's a... Oh, bye. Thank you. All right. You'll be back next week? One more week? Good. I'll try to make it... I'll try to make it a big grand finale for you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Okay, now... Um,
So how are the dead rays with what kind of body? Now, see, this is interesting. He, that first one, two, three, f the first four paragraphs, he c just covers the subject of resurrection independent, right? But then he poses new questions. So this is where I say, now what I came up with the word, he ca they call this diatribe. In diatribe thinking, what they do is they assume what your next question might be. And in this case, he states it for us. Thank you, Paul, right? So he now lets us know, well, okay, I've said all of this. This is my argument against you not believing that there's a resurrection. And he says, now you might say to me, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body? You might have more questions after this. Well, if I am going to resurrect, what kind of body am I going to have? And how is that going to happen, right? So then he addresses those questions. Then in 50 to 58, what is the question there? It's the same subject of resurrection. What, what is that, in general, what is that whole paragraph there about? Mm-hmm. But yes, and he's, and he's, and then he goes on, he says, I, I, behold, I tell you a mystery, what? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So he's talking about the subject of that, the fact that we will all be changed. So basically, the assumption in here is, what about those who are still alive when he comes? If, if the dead are raised, yes. He's giving them the order. So he's kind of coming back to the secondary part of this, those that are Christ at his coming. But what if those at his coming are not yet dead? Then what? How, do they get, how does that happen? So that's what he's addressing. So over here he's going to ask, what, what about those who are still alive when Jesus comes? I guess he was. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. You're so good. And, and God just super on this. What about those who are still alive at his coming? Okay, so now we, we have the questions, right? That's helpful, correct? These, there's actually two questions in, in 35 to 49 and one question in 50 to 58. So those are your questions. Just knowing that much, what's the questions, helps you then analyze what you're looking at, right? So how are the dead raised according to that? Well, he starts out by saying to them, you fools, right? You fool. Because he's already told them they need to be holding fast, they need to be sober-minded, all those things, and they are, haven't been doing that. Now, um, now we're concerned about what sort of body they will have. Right. <laughs> what, uh, are exa exa well, and not only that, but I think he alludes to this. A couple of things he says. In 36, he talks about um, in order to have new life, something has, it does have to die first, right? There's a principle about particularly about what subject matter. What does he introduce in 36 to 38 as a, as a tool through which he explains this? The seed. So he says, you fool, and he uses three analogies. Number one, th a seed. So he uses that as a pictorial pic teaching for them. The, number, the second thing he's going to do in 
39 is talk about what? Different kinds of flesh. And then number three, he's going to talk about heavenly bodies. So this has to do with things that are in the heavenly. So he hits heaven and earth, right? And he, and he speaks about it, how the process of how it does. So he uses those three analogies. So what I did on my marking to help me see this, I'm going to show you what I did on my observation worksheet. It's really a mess, though. Can you see the, the three different boxes? I just colored the three different sections in so that I could separate those three analogies out for myself. And then everything else that follows is, is an, uh, a support to those points. But by highlighting them with a colored marker, um, 36 to 38 as one segment, 39 as one segment, and then 40 to 41 as a segment, those shows show me the analogies that he uses. Okay, that's another form of literary style of work, right? Okay, a seed. What happens with the seed? What is the picture for us? Yep, a seed is planted in one form. It comes up another. Okay, very nice. So, and it's planted in death, and it emerges as something new and improved, by the way, right? Is it better or worse when it comes out of the ground? It goes in as, and uh, some of the commentaries describe the seeds that b get put. Did anybody do any reading on that? They were talking about how ugly tulip bulbs are, you know, and then when you put a tulip bulb in the ground, and, and then, but what comes out is this beautiful, I mean, one of the most beautiful flowers ever. Yeah, so it's new and it's something new and improved is my statement. Something new and improved. That's my grand conclusion on that. And 39, what do we learn in there? What's, what's his emphasis about? Yeah, that it's not the same. Each flesh is distinct to itself for its own purposes, right? And not only for its own purposes, but when he talks about um, flesh is not the same flesh, there's flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. What has he just covered concerning the diversities and um, distinctions of these things? Wh what is he kind of alluding to? What when creation on the whole, and that each flesh has its own kind of flesh for its own abode as well. Are we going to be changing our abode when we take on this eternal thing, this new flesh? Yes. So what do you think God is going to be fitting us for? What, what is the purpose of a transform, a, a, a resurrected body? It's an eternal body. It's something that's going to be fitted for a new location, a new place that we are going to be living. Very interesting, he says in 38, but God gives it a body just as he wishes. So God has the bigger picture. He knows our needs. He knows what's going to be, it's what's going to make us suited for our new, our new abode in heaven, what, which we will enter into one day. And so therefore, he's, he gives this analogy about 
flesh is not all the same flesh. Why does he mention that? Because he's just letting you know. Flesh needs to be appropriate for its work, for its design purpose, and for its abode. So whatever that means for you and I, do you think that God knows what we're going to need? Okay, so he gives us that. He is talking about creation as an example for then the point that he's making is we're going to need an abo- a body which will be appropriate for our, our place and our abode in heaven. So when we get our resurrected body, he's just giving an example. There's different flesh for different things. God is determining that, right? He did that at the creation. So one of the points that you can bring out of this is, is that God, God is the one who does this. Do you not think, he calls them fools, you fools. Did God not create the whole world? Can he not also create you a new body, right? Absolutely. And so you fool, God Okay, so God determines, and what verse was that, um, 38? Okay, so God, God determines it, right? You fool, God determines it, and then he gives these pictures. So in, where there is different flesh, what he's saying is each flesh is distinctive. Otherwise, why would he mention fish and cattle and I mean, you know, right? He would stick with he, the humanness of it if it was all about just about us. He's just making a sweeping uh, pictorial place for you to go so that you can look down upon this and say, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he didn't just create men flesh, but he also c- created the bird flesh and the fish flesh and the cattle flesh. And in doing that, what God did was he gave each flesh what they needed th- in a distinctive way for their life for how they were going to live, where they were going to live, wh- what their design purpose was, right? So he's, it's distinctive. That's the important part of it. Distinctive uh, for purpose. I'll get it. That's no, okay. For purpose and abode. And I put that up. Th- thank you, my dear. Uh, purpose and abode. Do you think our purpose is going to change when we leave this life? Yes. Will our abode change? Yes. Eventually we're going to this new heaven and new earth. So that's one point. The other one is heavenly bodies. Now this one's interesting too. What is he saying there? Why does he bring up this subject about glory? There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So what's he talking about there? What is it? You have to kind of pull back and say, okay, we're going to get a resurrected body. He's just making a reference to these things he's already created that you can literally see and, and take notes of. That's how we learn, right? By what is physically in front of us. We learn from the t- what, w- what is on this earth so that we understand a heavenly meaning, right? So he's saying, okay, look at the earth and look at how I created the heavens and the earth and how I created, for instance, All these things like the sun and the moon and the stars, and they each have their own glory. What does that tell you about when I give you a glorified body? Isn't that amazing? He actually is saying there's going to be diversity even in our glory. 
that that and that uniqueness is a positive it's going to just like he has in the body of christ now gifted us for various works we're going to have varying degrees of glory and the glory the glory the varying degrees of glory does not mean better and less it means different unique diverse and that glory means u- uniqueness for the design purpose that he's going to have for us in eternity. It's not a rating system of who gets better glory and someone gets lesser glory. It means we get different kinds of glory for different purpose. Isn't that interesting? Heavenly bodies having their own glory, having its own glory, and each of us having differing glory unique from one another. I remember when we were studying about the, uh, in covenant about the white stone that's given and why does it give you a stone with a name written on it that no one knows but you and how God gave me this revelation or this this insight into it when I was studying it this year about that that is a a message to us that the intimacy that we have the relationship of intimacy that we have with God is not diminished or gone when we go into eternity that no that him giving us a name that no one knows but but us is to say I love you you and I have intimacy this is something that's going to be between just you and me and this is another one of those moments where the heavenly body is having its own glory. It's going to be unique. And it means that God finds each one of us individually unique and necessary, needful, loved, wanted, part of the plan, part of the picture. And it, it makes you special, but not special above anyone, but special. Jesus loves, loves you, but I'm his favorite. Right? You can feel that way. Without, it, without that being a literalness, right? Okay, so heavenly bodies. So these are the three analogies he gave them. And then he goes on to say, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. So then he goes into this Adam and Christ thing about the first Adam and the second Adam. And in a way, it's almost, again, a theological point of the fact that there's an order to this, that first you're born in Adam and then you will be born in Christ. First, you were given an earthly body coming into the fleshliness. Secondly, you will be given also a heavenly body, right? That which is from heaven. Um, We will bear the image of the heavenly, he says in 49. And then he says, so these are the three doctrines I came out of it with. Doctrines for us to know. The earthly body must die and be changed. Now, we don't have to have a physical death, but the the body will die. There'll be a death to the body regardless of whether you're alive at his coming or not. This body will die and be gone. He will give you a new immortal body, a resurrected body for a heavenly home. Okay? The, new, the second thing is the new body is not like the body that we have now. It's better. It's new and improved. <laughs> it's going to be just like Jesus' resurrected body. Okay? And then the last point for doctrine to know is it's God that gives a body just as he wishes. And you can trust him. You know, whatever that is. So if your question is, well, how are you going to be raised? Well, what kind of a body? Why are you fussing over that? Do you not trust God? Trust that he's going to give you exactly what you need for the design purpose that he has in store for you. 
Okay, we got, we got almost through. We had one last to do. At least you know the question. It pretty much lays itself, itself out. Um, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The dead will be raised, and we will be changed. So the question is, what about those who are still alive at his coming? And he's saying emphatically, we will all get a new body. Whether you're alive or dead at his coming, it he will transform your body into something which is suitable for the heavenly uh, world that you're, we're going to be going into.